0: Welcome to Cornerstone Church of Parker and our Sunday service webcast, which is connecting you to God's word anywhere over the internet. We're glad you're joining our webcast today and pray that God will minister to you as we share his good news in Christ Jesus. And now with a message from God's word, here's our speaker for today. Good morning. I'm going to put myself together here as we go. Um, So this morning, welcome, first of all, and um, Before we get started, does anybody in here need a Bible? If you need a Bible today, we have some, we're happy to send you home with one. If you raise your hand, us should be happy to hand one out to you. So if you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hand and we'll get one to you. I wanted to just introduce very quickly, we're we're taking a little shift in directions today. We're we're still in this foundation series. And Pastor Mike has spent the first five, six weeks talking about um, kind of our, our horizontal relationships, man to man, husband to wife. Employee to employer, and, and looking at the foundation of how it is relationally that we're supposed to live. And today we're going to look a little bit different direction. We're going to change gears and we're going to start looking at the foundations of our theology. What is it that we as Christians, we as, as this church here believe God is? And so today I want us to, to put on a little bit different, instead of the horizontal look, let's, let's start to look vertically at who God is. And we're going to start that today by asking the question who is this God? Today's topic is the one true God. That's who he is. I want you to, if you will with me, just watch a short video clip to get started here. Who is God? Who is God? The lady Christian. God. It's an idea. People just want something or some person to have faith in so that they can survive, and that's why they created God. God is nobody. I hope that God is iemand with a great heart. But I don't know if he bestaat. You put it in your for me. I think it's a very good thing. God is anything we want He, she, it to be, I suppose. He's everywhere, or she, or it. There is a one god, but they have a lot of forms in all of their religions. Master. For me, uh, according to my, my belief, Allah, the creator for Muslim people, but he is the same God for all of us actually. There is just one God and all the gods in our different religions like Jesus, uh, Ganesh Ji, Krishna Ji, they're just branches of him, we just like basically we have to see some image to create o es un ser a to imagine that a É difícil imaginar que ser somente criou esse mundo inteiro. Essas coisas evoluíram não sei, não you can not touch him, yeah. he's, he's everywhere. you could replace God with the word love for example. God is our ultimate daddy or mommy. <laughs> God is love, God is light. The God in me, the God in you, the God of the trees, the flowers. vivo the carnal. a cada um como a father. like a but he is God the Almighty. Amen. So how would you answer that question? If somebody came up to you on the street today and said, "You know, who who is God?" Have you ever heard yourself saying some of those things? I, I, I see that video, and I, I just think about how we, as the church today, have failed pretty miserably to be the people who say, "No, there is one." And I just, I watch that video and I, I wonder, man, what is, what is the heart of God for his children? As, as they say, oh, God is this, God is this, you know, God just from heaven above looks down with with, with concern and says, man, now I've told you, I've shown you who I am. And I wonder today if, in light of who we are as a church, I think we have become so much culturally aware and culturally sensitive that we're afraid to stand up and tell people who are dying and lost that there is one true God. No, it's not this. But this is what our kids are seeing, right? This is the culture. This is what we're being told is the norm today. This is, God is whatever you want. Fill in the blank. And, and I want us today to just kind of come back to this question of what does it mean, who is this God? As we look at our foundations of theology, there's, there's a very clear picture that God has painted about who he is. And it's not that. As cute and trendy and hip as that video is, and popular as that show may be, that's not who God is. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 40, this is what God says. He says, to whom will you compare me? Isaiah 40, verse 25. Who, who will you compare me to? He says, who is my equal? Here we watch a video full of people trying to come up with, this is who God is. This is who God, is. God says, no, don't even, you can't compare me. There's none like me. And so as we start, I want us to just to keep that in mind and, and thank you, Pastor Mike, for giving me the challenge of teaching who is God <laughs> in, in 35 minutes or less. Um, not just a small task. Who is God? Uh, so, Today, though, I want us to just focus in on these, these few areas today. Look at, number one, who, who God has told us He is. And um, this is an area, too, I actually volunteered when, when Pastor Mike asked if, if I'd be willing to share on one of these theology topics. To me, this is the one that, that hits closest to home because I work with teenagers, okay, and I see how lost we have become. And how afraid, as a generation, we have become to stand up and to say anything offensive to anybody. And, and what we're left with is this level playing field of, of a mess, where nobody knows who God is, and your God is your God, and your God is your... And that's fine. And I think that is so the polar opposite of who the God of the Bible is. So I, I did volunteer for this today. I just want us to keep that in mind, even though I'm going I'm to attempt to explain this and to teach on this, still there is this reality that God says, even at your best attempt, you still can't compare me. You still can't know me fully. He can be known, but, but even in our best attempts, we're still wrestling with who this God is. And, and when we try to put him in a box, he will continually expand that box. Make it bigger and bigger and continue to shape our our minds, our thoughts, and blow us away with who he is. So as we look at this today, four main things we want to look at. Number one, what God says about himself. We'll start with the word of God and just look at a few passages today. Number two, the fact that that God, and, and through history, has invited us into relationship with him. Um, And I want to look at the history, a brief history of God's teaching on on monotheism and and what it looks like. Because this culture you see here, this isn't that different than than what the Bible dealt with. Okay? But the reality is God has called us out. He said we're not to be like that. Number three, I want to look at the the problem that we are faced with today. In short, that, that we are a very adulterous people. And then finally, just come back to a couple action items and say, what is the solution? For us today. So, number one, let's look quickly. What does God say about himself? Well, if you turn to any numerous passages, I just picked a few to, uh, to get us started. You can read what God says about himself. But before I even get there, I want to start with this. There's a, there's a story of a rabbi, okay? And he would go to his students. And, and of course, these students, by, by the age of 12, good Jewish students, by the age of 12, would have memorized the entirety of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so he would call on one student, and he would say, Paul, stand and recite Genesis. And Paul, wanting to please his rabbi, of course, would stand up. And he would, I won't pick, I'm picking on Paul. <coughs> Paul's a friend of mine visiting from out of town today. Of course, a good student would stand up, and he would begin to recite Genesis, wanting to please his rabbi. And so he would start, and he'd say, In the beginning, God... And then the rabbi would yell, Stop! And the student would look around at the other students, like, did I get it wrong? Okay, and he'd sit down. He'd say, no, somebody recite Genesis. And he'd, he'd call on someone else. Recite. And, he, and the next student would stand up, eager to prove the other one wrong, but he thought he had it right. So maybe he just, he'd just he start over and he'd start reciting Genesis again. He's in the beginning, God. And then the rabbi would yell, stop! Three, four, five different students get up. In the be. In the beginning, God. They would tell this story, and, and the rabbi would yell, always yell, Stop. And so the first thing, the, the beginning, how God introduces us to himself through his word, those four words, and the rabbi said this to his students, he said, If you don't believe those first four words of the Bible, there's no point continuing on with the rest. So if you don't have that essential belief, In the beginning, God. Then there's no point continuing on. And I think today that's that's something we have to, as we as we couch this whole thing, we have to realize there there is a starting point here that in the beginning God, before all things, created all things, yes, but before all things he was, he is. Now what does he say about himself? Isaiah gives us a good picture. Isaiah forty four, he says, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Isaiah forty three ten. he says, I am he, before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Isaiah 44, is there any God besides me? No. No, there's no other rock. I know not one. Exodus 20, one of the very first commands God gives his people, the nation of Israel, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. So it's very clear from us, this, this oneness, this reality of who God is. He, he is, according to his word, if we're to take him at his word, he is the God. He is the one true God. Second thing I want us to look at today, this reality of this. This God, the almighty, all-powerful, limitless God, stooped down to earth and invited us into relationship with him. So if you know your your Old Testament history, you might see something like this. We start with creation, okay? Everything's perfect. It's all good. We don't know how long it lasted, but we know soon enough. We see Adam and Eve and we see the fall of man. Adam and Eve are in the garden, they're walking and talking, perfect harmony with God. But then at this crisis, at this moment, we see the fall of man. And God expels them from the garden. He says, I can't let you have eternal life. You can't have access to be eternally fallen and separate from me. So he bans them from the garden and says that now there must be a price paid for your sin. But God is gracious. And so God begins to rebuild, and this time he, he rebuilds and, and everything's going well in the earth until all of a sudden we see Genesis 6, the story of, of Noah. And, and by Genesis 6 already, the text says there, there was no one else righteous in the entire world. None other. And so God takes Noah and, and spares him, but again we see this, this destruction and this fall away from, from what God has been building So we start again, and the story goes again, and the people scatter this time, and we get to the story of the Tower of Babel, and people, um, number one, they're disobeying God's mandate to fill the earth. God says, fill the earth, subdue the earth. They're not. They said, no, we're going to stay here, and then we're going to build this tower, and we're going to become like God. And, And God again comes and intervenes, and we start over. And you see this pattern in Genesis, this building, building, and then... Judgment, start over. Building, judgment, building, judgment. Until we get to this story here. And, and this story to me is, is an awesome, phenomenal picture of who God is. The call of Abraham. I don't know if you can read that. It says, Abraham, and from Abraham, the nation of Israel, ultimately through the nation of Israel, comes Christ. And so the story kind of takes a turn here, where, where Abraham is called out. And if you read the text... Here's what we know about Abraham. Joshua 24:2 says this. Joshua said to all the people, "Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel: Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods." So we don't know from the text. We we don't know that Abraham was polytheist, many gods, but it's it's a safe assumption, knowing the land he was from. And the text does tell us his father and his other relatives were polytheists. They worshipped other gods. It's safe to say that Abraham's culture looked a lot like what we saw in that video today. Many gods, you, you call him whatever you want. But God says, you know what, I'm going to do something a little different this time. And he takes Abraham, and this is probably going to be stupid, but I'm going to try. This is what I make my students do when we talk about Abraham, okay? And he takes Abraham, oh, oh. And he says to Abraham, this is the picture in my head when I'm talking about Abraham. Sorry, video cameras. Um, Abraham, I want you to be called out. And he takes Abraham and he places him on this pedestal, right? Above all other peoples of the earth. And he says, when you look at Abraham, from now on out, people, the entire world, when you see him, you should see me. Because he's going to look different. He's going to do things different. Um, You see the the covenant of of circumcision come about here. You see God giving Abraham certain rules, laws, parameters to follow. You see that built upon with the nation of Israel. And he says, from here on out, we're not going to do this this thing anymore, this up, down. From here on out, I'm going to take these people, and I'm going to call this one people out from the entire world. And through this people, he says, through Abraham, through people, the entire world will be blessed. And so there's this picture that, that the Bible begins to paint that the God of the universe comes down and he, he takes a people and calls them out and sets them apart. And and he says, Here's everybody else down here. Okay. But this guy, these people are my own. Yeah, they look different. Yeah, sometimes they dress different, they do things different, they eat different, they they worship. Different. You guys have multiple gods. One of, one of my favorite stories, if you know the, the Old Testament, um, just context of the, the, the Old Testament, it was very common when you packed your bags to travel, you would take your gods with you. okay? And gods were geographically bound in the Old Testament. So if you were traveling to a different land, you would, you would bring your gods with you. And then if you got to a new land, you would, as soon as you got there, you wanted to know who those gods were. So you could please them and worship them and and not offend them. And and this was the custom. And you see this hinted at, even with some of the great heroes of the faith, where they they were tempted to do that. But God says, no, you're different. Your God is not bound by geography. Your God is not bound by boundaries like like other gods. Your God is called, he has said he is the one true God. And he's not limited. And, and, And in other cultures, right, they would craft these little idols and and set them, and, and worship, and pray to them. And God says, no, as a matter of fact, with me, don't even try to do that. He says, don't make any graven image, because you can't. Because that's not who I am. I'm bigger than that. These people, they worship things. They, 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 they make idols out of one half of a log, and then they cook food over the other half. And how, how silly is that? They worship one end of the tree, yet they use the other end for fuel. He says and I'm not who that I am a different God I am bigger I am above and Abraham you and the nation of Israel are going to be my example to the rest of the world so it, it always blows my mind that this God has called us out we see that calling of Abraham in Genesis 12 and we see that promise repeated to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to his descendants for generations God says remember I have called you out and I'm taking you on this journey. And I'm going to make you a mighty people. And, and through you, the entire world should be blessed. And the picture I see is this. Through you, when, when, when the world looks around and, and we see this level playing field, I want to be the guy on the stool. I want to be the one that rises above the crowd. And people look at that and say, why is he different? What is it about him? And, and I think... It is the power of God. And, and, and we see this, this pattern now begin to play out in Abraham's life. This one true God. As a matter of fact, um, if you read Deuteronomy 6, you see this prayer repeated. And, and if you're a good Jew, you would repeat every morning and every night. You would wake up and the first words on your lip, every night, the last words on your lips would be this, hear, O Israel, Shema Israel." You say. Shema is, is hear or listen. And 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 God gives them this prayer, and they would every day they would say, We're different, we're different, we're different. We wake up, we're different. In the nation of Israel, they wake up and they recite the Shema and they say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should have no other gods before. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so even in within their culture, they daily become these people who say, We are the ones who serve the one. We look different. I love Vanderlaan's thoughts on this. He says, reciting Shema meant, to these people, it meant renewing your relationship with God. This was done regularly, perhaps several times a day. Whenever a person recited the Shema, he celebrated God's covenant or promise of grace. Shema firmly acknowledges allegiance to God alone. To recite Shema is to wholeheartedly accept the kingdom or reign of God in life, again and again and again and again and again. And so that picture God gives us, that he has called us into relationship with him. He is the one true God, but he wants to show who the world, who he is through us. And that blows my mind. And that's an incredible opportunity we have. But, this is the problem today. There's a quote that comes to my mind, and then you read through, you look at the life of of Gandhi, the guy who really revolutionized the entire nation of of India, right? Um, And if you look a little bit into Gandhi's life, you you see he's a man who studied, at one point in his life, studied Christianity. And there's a famous quote of Gandhi's that I've, I've shared several times with my own students. It says, I like their Christ, I just don't like their Christians. So how is it that a man who's, who's known as the father of modern India, right? Billion-plus people in India now that are largely lost. Okay. And if you, if you watch the news recently, too, be praying. Um, India is, is going through a major turmoil itself right now. They've, they've kicked out many, many Christian ministries. Compassion International is gone. I think Mother Teresa's homes are gone. Um, The government has an agenda right now to remove anything that is Christian. And we have some friends who are missionaries there who are going through this as well and have had to even step out of the country um, because of the hostility there. Imagine what would have happened if Gandhi looked at Christians and saw them on the stool and said, Wow, I like their God. I want to worship their God because of what I see in this because of what I see here, then the father of modern-day India, perhaps India would be one of the largest Christian nations. Who knows? The problem is this. Jeremiah 2 paints it very clearly. I want to look at just an Old Testament example, because this is not an old story. This has been going on since, really since God called us out into relationship with him almost immediately. We showed how adulterous we are. And how wicked our heart is. Jeremiah 2 gives us the story. Verses 1 through 13. And here's Jeremiah um, speaking to the kingdom of Judah. He says, this is what the Lord says. Now keep in mind, at this point in history, Judah is facing um, some heavy opposition. They have been largely unfaithful to God. And God is warning them through Jeremiah that if you don't return to me, if you don't declare this allegiance again to me, that, that I am the one true God, if your heart is not 100% mine, then judgment is coming. And here's what he says to his people. Jeremiah, tell them this. I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago. And I hear the words of David in there in his prayer. God, restore to me. The joy of my salvation. But but Jeremiah says to these people, I remember how you were eager to please me as a young bride. How you loved me and followed me even through the barren wilderness. In those days Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his children. All who harmed his people were declared guilty and disaster fell on them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Listen. What's that word again. Shema. Listen. To the word of the Lord, people of Jacob. All you families of Israel, this is what the Lord says. What did your ancestors find wrong with me that led them to stray so far from me? They worshipped worthless idols, only to become worthless themselves. They did not ask, Where is the Lord who brought us safely out of Egypt, and led us through the barren wilderness, a land of deserts and pits, a land of drought and death, where no one lives or even travels? And when I brought you into a fruitful land to enjoy its bounty and goodness, you defiled my land and corrupted the possession I had promised you. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? And I think it's striking, too, that he, he, he makes it a point to show even the leaders among them, the leaders, the ones who are supposed to be leading the nation of Israel, these, these guys are not even seeking the face of the Lord in their culture. Those who taught my word ignored me. The rulers turned against me. The prophets spoke in the name of Baal, wasting their time on worthless idols. Therefore, I will bring my case against you, says the Lord. I will even bring charges against your children's children in the years to come. Go west and look in the land of Cyprus. Go east and search through the land of Kedar. Has anyone ever heard of anything as strange as this? Has any nation ever traded its gods for new ones? Even though they are not gods at all, yet my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing, and they shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. And they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns. It's a a well, a place to hold water, that can hold no water at all. And the picture God gives us in in Jeremiah, he says, here's a a people who who know full well who this God is. They've seen him do miraculous, mighty things. Yet somewhere through the history of of the people, they begin to fall off the stool. And they began to say, we, we want to look like everyone else. As a matter of fact, they do say that. <laughs> Give us a king. We want to look like everyone else. We don't want God as our king. We want to look like everyone else. And God says, I have this against you. You've abandoned me as the source of living water. And you've attempted to replace it with something that is not me. And, and when you try to do that, that, that "not me" thing is not going to bring you any life at all. It's going to leak, it's not going to hold water. The, the picture too, in the Old Testament, when we see those wells dug, oftentimes those wells that we build ourselves, because we don't trust God to provide the rain and the water, those wells become rancid, full of disease and death. And God says, "When you drink from that well, you get what you, you, you get what you inherit.." Yeah, if that is where you go, then you reap the consequences. So, Jeremiah gives us one picture, even in the Old Testament, how quickly we have forgotten, we have forsaken who God is. If you look at the word forsaken in the scriptures, forsook, forsake, forsaken, at least a hundred times, I stopped counting around a hundred times, God gives that picture of his people. You have forsaken, you have forsaken, you have forsaken. But you know what's so cool about the other side of that story? God never turns his back. He's, he's given us that grace to come back into relationship. What does this look like for us today? This is, this is for me fun, and I'm sorry if it's a little too nerdy for you, but I am a sociology, biblical studies, history guy, so... Here's where I think, if you look at modern-day history, say, oh, that was then, that's Jeremiah, those people. We've got it so much better. I began thinking through, what does it look like today for us? Why is it that we have such a hard time focusing in on who God is, taking Him at His word, that He is the one true God? And so you begin to read through history, and and you see something shift around the 1600s, okay? John Locke um, one of the great thinkers of his time, of the Enlightenment, the Reformation era, the uh, the Age of Reason, John Locke writes this book, and he says this: he says that human nature is mutable, and that knowledge is gained through accumulated experience, rather than by accessing some sort of outside truth. Let me read that one more time and unpack it real quick. Locke says knowledge is gained through experience rather than outside truth. And I think Locke kind of began to launch this trajectory for us as a culture that we have taken now to the extreme. If you you start at the Enlightenment, you go to the Age of Reason, uh, fast forward 150, 200 years, you see a, a gentleman by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. And he writes this, he says, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? So if you, if you take Locke's trajectory and you begin to move us forward, largely what you see is, is us taking the outside of ourselves, the reality, the, the expressed truth of who God has said he is, said, no, God, we don't believe that. I instead am going to tell you who I believe you are. And I'm going to reason it out, I'm going to think through it, and, and if it doesn't make sense to me, then it must not be true, so, so therefore, I don't need you, God, to tell me who that is. You fast forward, um, after Nietzsche, you get into this, this modern era, the scientific method. Now we can prove things. Uh, a great transition happens. I think when you, we go from uh, the history of the Bible, we would build towers and worship centers on high places, okay, because God dwelt in the heavens, the gods dwelt in the heavens, so we would build, all throughout the scripture, you see, you see altars built on the tops of mountains because the belief is that this is where God is. This is where he lives. Well, fast forward through the modern era. The rise of, of secularism, which is the divorce of God from, from culture, really, from politics, from education. We begin to take God out of those things. Now, 19... 50s, 60s, all of a sudden we start exploring space and we can put man on the moon. What do we need God for anymore? There's no God that dwells in the highest heavens. I'm here. And he sticks his flag on the moon. And says, We're here. So little by little, the past couple hundred years in our culture, I think we have, we have begin, begun to take this trajectory away from taking God at his word, who he is, and have begun to replace him with, especially in, in in today in what we call this postmodern culture, your truth is your truth, and, and whatever you want it to be is fine. If you ever read postmodernism, it'll drive you nuts. If you ever get into the philosophy of postmodernism, uh, there's, there's this, largely it, it is built on the, the reality of words and the construct of words, and, and there's there's not even there's not even truth in language anymore. And 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 when we take Away what a word is, or when we live in a culture that now says there's no such thing as, as male and female, we're going to redefine gender, or we're going to redefine sexuality, we're going to redefine marriage, right? Because marriage doesn't really mean marriage. Marriage is just a word. It was a social construct, Postmodernism would say. And, and now I think we're, we're very quickly and rapidly in this place of a post-Christian culture, but, I don't want us to despair there. Um, at the battle of all of these, these historical phases, the Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, uh, modernism, so on and so forth, you also see this, this undertone of what the church is doing, right? And we're trying to constantly... We're trying to engage culture and, and step in and how do we honor God but live in this culture that is walking away from God... And and so the first attempt really begins with with Luther in the 1500s in Reformation, okay? The Protestant Reformation where Luther says, I don't like where the church is going. I see that this is who God is. And you see this huge divorce between the the Catholic church and the Protestant church. And from there you you start to see, well, Luther, we're going to have the Lutherans, then we're going to have the Calvinists, and we're going to have the Methodists, and we're going to have the Baptists, and the Anglicans, and the Assemblies of God, the Pentecostals, the... Church of God, the Church of God in Christ, the Church of God in Christ, Cleveland, Tennessee. The... I can go on, believe me. I mean, get a, get a Yellow Pages and look. And, and, and every one of these churches begins to say, no, this, this is who God is. And we take this truth and we say, no, this is who God is. And, and all we've done, I think, in, in the rise of denominationalism is, is begin to push a culture away because... We're divided, and we're we're not painting a clear picture to this world anymore of who God is. And and I love, there's, a, there's a, it's called a theological treatise. It's this old truth. He says basically this: um, in non essentials, we should have grace. And Mike, help me out if I quote it wrong. I didn't write it down. In the non essentials, grace. In the essentials, we should have unity. But in all things, we should love. And I, and I love that picture. Um, and I think there's a challenge for us even today in our church. Fundamentalism movement after, after this. Um, Burning Grounds was the chancellor at Denver Seminary. He said this. He said, fundamentalism was, was no fun at all, too much damn, and not enough mental. These guys, they, they're rising. We're going we're gonna to say, this is who God is. And, and we kind of closed the doors of the church and said, this is who God is. And then what happened next? Well, we have a whole generation of people who said, man, you guys are mean. You're so close-minded. So what do we do? We go the other spectrum, and we swing the pendulum over here and say, no, this is who God is. He's, he's love. He's grace. Everything. Um ultimately today too now you you see late 1800s early 1900s this huge influx of of multiple religions coming into our country now and the religious pluralism of America today most recently I love um, Love Wins wrote that up there Rob Bell wrote a book Uh, big pastor was a very successful pastor in a church in Michigan and he wrote a book in which he, he basically says, this God who we serve, there's no way he would ever sentence anybody to hell. At least eternally. And so his, we've gone from fundamentalism to a God who doesn't even sentence anyone to hell because he's love. And a God who is love would never punish anyone. So we're back to this place of who is this God, Right? And you see why people are so confused today? Because we as a church have, have walked so many different paths. At the core of every one of these seasons of history is this ultimate question. And your $5 word for today, it's the metaphysical question. Who is God? What is the really real? What is he like? And these things competed throughout history but our God has never changed. So I want to come back to this, this last piece then today and leave you with one more story. What is our response? God is, God has revealed himself to be the one true God through scripture. He's given us a clear understanding of who he is. There is no one like him. We're not to worship any other gods. He is to be the supreme chief, the one, the true god over all other gods we know though that we are an adulterous people even though he's invited us into relationship we stray and we wander so far so how do we come back to as a culture and as a people how do we come back to this place of centering and saying we want to stand up and be the light to the world of who god is If you will, look at 1 Kings with me, please. A little bit of reading here. 1 Kings chapter 18. Verses 18 through 39. The the title at the top in my Bible says, The Contest on Mount Carmel. So in a world where God is so confused in, in, in many places. God is a man, God is a woman, God is love, God is this. I think God, even in this Old Testament story, gives us a pattern for today to look to and say, you "No, know, God is this. First Kings 18, here's what he says. Ahab um, sees Elijah, okay? Is it really you? He says, you troublemaker of Israel. And and Ahab has been hunting for Elijah. There's hardly been any prophets in the land because they've been hunted and killed. And here Elijah surfaces because God has called him to, to confront the culture he lives in. In verse 18, Elijah replies, I have made no trouble for Israel. You and your family are the troublemakers. For you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord, and you have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who are supported by Jezebel. These are both false gods that the nation of Israel has been worshipping. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver He stands out and he talks to this culture. He says, How much longer are you going to waver between this God and this God or the one true God? And Elijah confronts them How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord, if Yahweh, the God of Israel, is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. And I wonder today, I mean, how often are we as the church of the one true God guilty of our silence? And the people were silent. You know, your, your silence is a decision. Because the one true God, the very nature, his very title, demands a response from us. And that response is not silence. The people were silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bowls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish, and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. And you guys know this story. You probably heard this story in Sunday school growing up. Elijah says, I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of, he didn't say my God, right? He says the, and I will call on, you call on your God and I'll call on the God. I'll call on the Lord, the true God. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. sounds good. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, You go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bowls, prepare it, and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bowls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed. For surely he is a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming. Or perhaps he's relieving himself. Literally, that's the language of the text. Perhaps he's in the bathroom. Or maybe he's always on a trip. Or he's asleep and needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder. And following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. But still, there was no sound. No reply, no response. Then Elijah called to the people, Come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took twelve stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, and I think honestly at this point Elijah is just showing off. (laughs) After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up To the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. I love that prayer, that that word from Elijah. God, prove yourself so these people will know. Use me, okay? I've followed you. Show them that I am walking after you by coming and doing what you said you would do. And God, prove yourself to this culture. Prove yourself to these people because you are the one true God. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven And burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded to seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. God's judgment comes. You know what they cry out? He was cool about Hebrew. You know what Elijah means? L-E-Ja. My daughter's name is L-E-Anna. L is the name for God. E is the possessive form. My God. You know what they cry out? The Lord is God. They're crying out. Elijah. 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 They're saying his name. <laughs> Elijah. 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 The Lord is God. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. And I love that picture that God gives us because sometimes I think the task for us to try to prove that that God is God is overwhelming. And I think sometimes we have to just realize and remember that God will speak for himself if we are living in right relationship. My takeaways from this, who is this one true God? He's revealed himself in scripture. He's shown us who he is. He's invited us into relationship with him. Even though we are an adulterous people, his heart, as we see in 1 Kings, his heart is for all the world to know who he is. To know that he is the one true God. And so my my challenge for us today as we begin to wrap up and, and think about what it means for us in our culture, there's a few clear things I hear. Number one, we must look less and less like the culture and more and more like the God who made us. We're not doing anybody any good. Waffling in between. If, if your response to the God of the universe is silence, then you have made your decision. And God says, no, I want you to look like me. I want you to be the one standing on the stool calling back the picture of Abraham, that, that we are the called-out ones. That we look different than everybody else. Being Abraham. And, and, and I think, man, when, when we're standing on the stool and people ask us, you know, why does your marriage look different? Why does your relationship look different? Why do you get promoted when others don't? Our answer is simply this. It's because of God. Because I serve the one true God. You, you, you may worship your other gods but I serve the one true God and I want you to know who he is we have to refuse to compromise with the culture around us more and more church today because I think the day is coming and I was having this talk with, with somebody last week about raising kids in this generation Like it's tough man it's tough one of, the, one of the things I love about, yes, I teach at a Christian school. And, and one of the biggest reasons I love that school is because of the culture that is there. That I have a, a culture of people who are surrounding my daughter and my son who are pointing them to God. Because the culture around us is doing everything to tear us away from who God is. And so we have to, as a people of God, we have to refuse to compromise with this culture around us. Again, the truth of who God is, the one true God, that statement is not just a statement. It is something that we have to put over our own lives and then we have to make a decision about. Is He the one true God in your life? Is He the one true God? The Shema reminds us that we, every morning, every night, we say the prayer, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that we, as a people, are called to daily affirm the centrality and the distinctiveness of who this God is. He's not like anyone else. He is amazing, He is different, and in light of that, then, we let that truth shape every part of our life and our relationship. I love the song that we closed with today. I didn't know um, Jamie was going to pull this song, but I, I love the words to this. For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. God, you are exalted far above all gods. For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. You are exalted above all other gods. I want to play just a, a short here. I found this song this week that I think wraps up very well what we're talking about, and then we'll dismiss together today. Whoops. Actually, I need help playing it. Sorry, guys. Will that pull up? <clears throat> Sorry, I told them I might use it, I might not. I didn't prepare very well. How about if we do this? I will pray together for us. And if it works at the end, it's great. If not, no big deal. Um, we pray with me, please, today? Father, we thank you, God, for revealing yourself. That you did not stay hidden, that you are not removed from your creation, that you are not, as the, as the deists proclaim, a God who set the world in motion and then left it to be, but that, God, you are here and interacting with us today. God, we know who you are through your word. Yeah, we know who you are through, through our own experiences, through, through the, the testimony of others, through the, the great working of your hand throughout history that shows that, God, you are mighty above all other gods. So we take you at your word today that you alone are the one true God. But God, I pray today for just a spirit of repentance over us today as your church, God, for how we have failed to stand apart. God, that you have invited us into relationship. You have invited us to be your light. To be, as Matthew says, the city on the hill that cannot be hidden. God, you, have, you have called us to that position that sometimes we hide and sometimes we cower in the face of a culture that really is powerless. God, we surrender our power to them. And we sacrifice the call that you have placed on us. and So we ask for your forgiveness today. May we echo the prayer of John, God, as as he cried out, Holy Spirit, God, would you become more in our lives? And would we become less? And God, would you raise up in this church even today, of people who are called out, of people who are willing to stand apart from culture, as the Elijahs of old, Father, who stood up and said, choose this day whom you will serve. Yeah, The Joshuas of old who, who echo that same prayer, choose who we will serve. The ones who have the boldness to stand in front of culture and declare that there is one true God. And God, as we do that, we know that we're not alone. You are the God who meets us in miraculous ways. Even today, as you are are meeting people of different faiths in supernatural ways and showing yourself to them, Lord, would you show yourself to us today? Show yourself strong. And God, forgive us when we are weak. Help us to take the stand that is needed in this culture today to declare the truth of who you are. You alone, are the one true God. It is in your mighty name that we pray. It's in your name that we ask for the strength to carry on this week. Amen. Amen. Oh, it might play. Let's do this, guys. I will just, anything else I need to add? Officially dismiss you. If you guys would like to be dismissed, and I apologize to children's workers if I went a couple minutes long. So, uh, Otherwise, you're free to mingle and watch this as you go. So, have a blessed day, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Sunday service webcast from Cornerstone Church of Parker in Parker, Colorado. We hope that his truth has enriched your life and inspires you to greater works in God's kingdom. We invite you to worship with us in our Sunday morning service or join in our other ministry events posted on cornerstonechurchofparker.org. Cornerstone Church, built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and connecting people to God, each other, and to our world.